Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, host of White House Chronicle. Today we begin a new series of special programs produced in collaboration with the Pell Center and the Providence Journal. They're called Story in the Public Square and hosted by Jim Ludis and G. Wayne Miller. Hello and welcome to White House Chronicle. This week we're bringing you a special edition, Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Ludis from the Pell Center at Selva Regina University, alongside G. Wayne Miller from the Providence Journal. Story in the Public Square is an effort to study, celebrate, and tell stories that matter. So about once each month, Wayne and I will be in to talk to storytellers about their work and the impact they're having on public life. Llewellyn King and Linda Gasparella will be back next week, but we want to thank them for the opportunity. We're going to try very, very hard not to break their show. <laughs> Our guest today is August Cole, co-author of Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next World War, a former journalist with the Wall Street Journal, and now also a fellow at the Atlantic Council, working to mine narrative fiction for insights about the future of war. August, thanks so much for being with us. It's great to be here. So uh, you and your co-author, Peter Singer, are... Uh, among two of the best-known defense thinkers in Washington. Uh, you and your career as a journalist helped break the story about uh, China stealing plans for the F-35, uh, an aircraft that plays a role in the book. Um, Peter has written books on child soldiers, on uh, robotics and cybersecurity. Uh, what led the two of you to collaborate on a work of fiction like this? Well, we wanted to tackle one of the biggest questions out there. And when we started a few years ago, there wasn't a lot of conversation about the strategic challenge or the threat, really, that China posed. And we felt like fiction was a way to talk about this with a much bigger audience than if we'd written a nonfiction book or a mm -hmm. series of white papers. Mm -hmm. It really opened the aperture. And some of the, the way people have been responding to the book, I think, reflects that. It's been uh, received well within the military, but also there are plenty of uh, people who are coming to this with a new understanding of why cybersecurity, for example, is important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on why you chose fiction? I mean, obviously you've written a lot of material both as a journalist and as a member of a think tank and as a strategic and military thinker, but why fiction? Fiction is a particular genre that can do some things and can't do other things. I mean, I think to start, I just love a really good story. Well, and that's a good, <laughs> you came to the right place to talk about that. My, you know, my, my sense, and, and Pete's as well, was that there are some really big challenges in how to conceive of the future of warfare, mm -hmm. and that a lot of the status quo ways to do it aren't really up to the task. By taking a fictional structure, a novel, really, that was going to be fast-paced, enjoyable to read, but also useful, we could, in fact, get people to start thinking in a serious way about some of these challenges that weren't really being appreciated but are starting to be talked about now. Yeah, so you, and one of the things that I read, uh, I think it was an Atlantic article where, they, where you and Peter described a uh, desire to produce useful fiction. What does that mean for you? Endnotes. The book has 400 endnotes. <laughs> you know, the, the idea was that you know, you could have a book that would be engaging that you didn't want to put down yeah. and that it would prompt you when you went to your job on Monday if you worked in the Pentagon or in the <clears throat> intelligence community or even in the private sector to start thinking seriously about some of the, the things we bring up in the book, like yeah. a hardware hacking, yeah. you know, are the microchips on a fighter plane truly trustworthy or could there be latent flaws in them that could expose them to uh, a sort of a kill switch or a homing signal for a missile? There are also bigger, bigger bigger questions to think about, like, 
what is the future of the Communist Party in China? Mm -hmm. you know, that's a really fascinating academic question, but when you explore it in a narrative way, uh, as we did in the book, you can have a lot of fun and I think engage the reader in something that would otherwise be quite abstract, especially mm -hmm. for an American reader. Are, are there rules that you lived by in terms of, so this is a speculative fiction about an imagined future. Are there rules that guided, you know, as you thought about the future of the Communist Party, what informs the boundaries that you're willing to explore in this, in this imagined future? So as our, as our you know, path to create useful fiction was laid out before us, we wanted to have all the technology in the book uh, in development or real. That was a really mm -hmm. important foundational uh, rule to, to set down and to adhere to. The trends that we walk forward, whether it's uh, the dissatisfaction with the Communist Party that we see growing now, for example, in the financial space, mm -hmm. the rising professionalism of the People Liberation Army, our own military's uh, assessed vulnerabilities in the cyber domain, all those are rooted in real risks or real uh, trends. And so we wanted to walk that forward in a way that actually upset a lot of the conventional assumptions that people were bringing to the debates around the future of security. Mm -hmm. You know, it was essentially a chance to check blind spots, but also turn over the apple cart a bit. So you, you've got a very receptive audience in the military uh, sphere, as it were. Also, I'm guessing in the political arena. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, who, who, who read this? What did they take from it? And how was their experience different than reading, say, a white paper or a classified briefing? Or I think it's really the, interesting to see the connection that people are making between this book and a book Tom Clancy wrote in 1986 called Red Storm Rising. Mm. And actually for Pete and I, that book was game changing for us. We were young, but it really got us thinking in a big and expansive way about, about war and about conflict. Our, our hope was to do something similar. It's why we took these sorts of different perspectives, you know, so you can see the war through the eyes of a, of a, a space privateer who's a billionaire or an American insurgent in Hawaii or a Chinese admiral. With all those different points of view, and I think with that, that resonance with that original uh, Red Storm Rising kind of concept, the official military reaction has been really interesting because it's being treated as essentially useful fiction. Uh, the Marine Corps commandant recently has been talking about the book regularly in public as being something to read. The uh, Army itself has actually gravitated towards the book, even though there's a big warship on the cover. Uh, they've actually seen a lot of lessons learned in there around how to think about technology, when it's going to work, when it's not. And the Navy itself, of course, uh, has been, been a, a really receptive reader uh, in, in general in that community, all the way up to the Secretary of Navy and, and also smaller groups that are focused on innovation. Yeah. And all the services have, have tended to uh, see it as what, useful. What about the mainstream reader, the mainstream audience, somebody who's not in that uh, sector, somebody who has you know, no dog in the fight in terms of the military, as it were? Just the average person reading it. And I've looked at the Amazon comments, there are hundreds of them. And it's clear to me that there are a lot of people who are not in that sector, who have no, you know, nothing invested in technology or warfare or the future of warfare who are reading it. What are you saying to these people? Why, why are they coming to this? Well, the thriller uh, genre is one of the most exciting to read for me personally, and so it's nice to see the book connect with them. We wanted to give people a good story first. I think that's really, really important. When you're thinking about your role as a, as a writer and trying to make a compelling case for the characters you've laid out, the world you've built. Yeah. And so to see the book resonate with people who aren't you know, doing this in their day job, it, it means a lot because there's some, some you know, strength to the, to the story itself. And so I think what they're getting in there is a picture of technologies today that are often talked about in very discreet ways. Yeah. You know, people might talk about drones, but not necessarily how drones will operate alongside fighter planes in the future, which they will. Or better yet, if you're a pilot, what that might actually feel like. You know, yeah. this human element 
to a highly technological type of warfare is often overlooked, but it's so important to understand. So, you know, since 2001, really, the U.S. military has been focused on small wars. Right. Uh, so uh, the the counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, even after uh, uh, even after the invasion of Iraq, the the occupation, which was really about uh, counterinsurgency, uh, and and part of that reality has been a set of assumptions that you could describe as a narrative, and the narrative said essentially that great power matters were largely settled, uh, and the likelihood of a great power conflict was small. Um, I think the events of the last three years maybe have got us rethinking that a little bit. But you imagine a, a, a world where um, the small wars are still there, but these big, great power issues still prevail. Um, what, beyond just sort of wanting to tell a big story, is there, are there trends that you see that give you pause for concern in terms of the future we're headed towards? I think there's a lot of things to really track closely. Uh, China's military development is one of them. You know, the way they're spending uh, indicates that they have a desire to project power. Mm -hmm. you know, that's why they're buying stealth fighters. That's why they're building a second aircraft carrier of their own design. The, the notion that small wars will become less frequent, I think, is wrong. That those sorts of conflicts, unfortunately, are going to prevail globally, for mm -hmm. whether it's due to proliferation of small arms or other economic drivers. But yet, we have to think about the big risk and where does China see its place in the world, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Pacific, which as they develop a blue water navy, a navy that can sail globally, that can use new ports in Africa, they are going to start to think about their role in protecting what's called the global commons, the way we you know, count trade you know, through the world's oceans, uh, cyberspace for that matter, which is to some extent an extension of that, that right. concept. You know, the one belt, one road. Uh, idea that the Chinese government has right now is that their uh, reach will be global, uh, both economically but also strategically. Do you think there re is realistically a chance that there could be this type of war with China? Our, our hope was to create a scenario that would scare people enough to realize that this was something that would not be easy. Uh, I think one of the most dangerous things to consider is that a U.S.-China conflict could be short or contained or quick. I think that's a risk that both the PLA but also the U.S. military run. And we wanted to show that this is the sort of uh, attitude that could lead uh, both nations down a very dangerous path with consequences far different than past wars. The home front, for example, being vulnerable uh, to cyber attack, the allies that we have abandoning us, uh, simply not being aligned anymore with our strategic interests. Uh, NATO's future as a U.S. partner, particularly in the context of a Pacific campaign, is, is totally up in the air. It is not at all certain. Our economies, though, are so codependent, if, to use a sort of a therapeutic term here. Mm -hmm. What would motivate China to want to upset that balance? I mean, we really are two countries with many differences, but economically we are intertwined we increasingly are. and yeah. increasingly and increasingly. I mean, if, I don't have to tell you all that in terms of the companies there and the, the Chinese and the companies and the people here in terms of education, in terms of families back and forth. And I, I don't have the answer to that. I'm wondering, you know, you, sure. you clearly have assessed that. And, and so you know, we thought about that a lot. And the yeah. thing that really worried me was people said the exact same thing in 1913 mm. before the First World War broke out. Uh, you know, the, the, the notion that China's sense of its place in the world and that what we envision in the book is a regime running China that's different than the Communist Party, that has a very clear sense of its destiny, that I see as a more direct or almost linear 
uh, kind of investment in a Chinese 21st century, which is, I think, part of what they wish, given their economic power. You know, they'll be the world's largest economy within 10 years. They may be spending yeah. as much That's on defense true. as we are in 15 years or sooner, you know, if growth rates continue, and I expect they will. Have, have you had any reaction from readers in China or from not politicians yet. Uh, in China? Is or? it published in China? Uh, it is not published in China. It will be available in Taiwan uh, and, so it'll that, make its and way therefore over. Hong Kong and Macau. So it'll make its way over there. I mean, that's a conversation I actually look forward to. I mean, right. to be able to sit around a table like this with PLA admirals and, and discuss the book wow. with them would be we'll have would be back great. For sure, where we get I would love to we get love the Chinese edition. But, yeah. but I think that's an important question too. I mean, it, it goes to this very basic basic kind of sense of of destiny. That's a theme throughout the book. You know, we have it in terms of uh, our characters, uh, whether it's a father and son relationship or what does war do to the individual? Are you changed fundamentally at an almost like psychological level, yeah. uh, even if you don't mean to be as a civilian? And then destiny is a nation. You know, are, is America a nation in decline? Is our is our reach and our impact being diminished? You know, by our own actions? Yeah. Uh, and is China's ascent uh, a sure thing, or is there or is there a question about its rise? That's the kind of question we wanted to answer, and we, we used a novel to do it because we knew that people, once they started reading, wouldn't be able to put it down. So we're going to explore a little bit more of this, but let me just say this is White House Chronicle. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Selvey Regina University, alongside G. Wayne Miller from the Providence Journal. Uh, Linda uh, Llewellyn King and Linda Gasparilla will be back next week. We're going to take a moment here for station identification, primarily for the benefit of our listeners on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 124, the POTUS Channel. Heard throughout the United States and Canada, White House Chronicle can be heard four times every weekend. This program is also seen on the international stations of the Voice of America and on 200 American television stations. Our guest is August Cole, co-author of Ghost Fleet. So let me um, pick up on a, on, a, on a criticism that I read about the book that you, you and Peter, and we've talked about it today, the impact of Red Storm Rising. Um, this was a book that uh, was written in mid-1980s by Tom Clancy, uh, where there was a Cold War that was well established and well understood. Uh, the difference with what you've done here is you have imagined a conflictual relationship between the United States and China set in the future. For that young reader, uh, who is thinking about and is sort of enamored with this world that's been created uh, the same way I was you know, enamored with Jack Ryan. Um, is there a danger that the world that you're creating is yet to be created, whereas Red Storm Rising was a world that already existed? Are we preconditioning, or I think what critics would say, that we're, um, we're establishing a, 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 a contested relationship with China that doesn't have to be? I think the way we framed it is it's an act of fiction, not a work of prediction, mm -hmm. or work of fiction, not an act of prediction. That said, everything in the book is so rooted in reality that I mm -hmm. do think it should stand as a cautionary tale mm -hmm. in two ways. One is that the Chinese are quite clear in their strategic ambition. They're uh, arming their PLA at a rate that outstrips any other nation in Asia, which given their economic might makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but also it shows that to what I said earlier about this risk that we could believe a conflict with China could be contained. Yeah. Maybe it breaks out over uh, ships trading paint in the South China Sea. Yeah. Maybe it is uh, a cyber uh, campaign that escalates to Maybe it's something an accident that, that torches something and triggers something. You know, the, the, the risk, I think, would be that a younger generation would look at all the technology around them and assume that America's dominance in the world is assured, and it's not. 
Uh, even those who have invested their entire careers in uh, military dominance know that deep inside, that many of the assumptions that we have had of the last, say, 15 to 20 years about America's technological dominance, that era is ending. You know, the proliferation and democratization of many disruptive technologies derived often from the commercial sphere. Um, you know, this is true in the online realm. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can see it with quadcopters, the yeah. drones that are, that are marketed globally to more advanced defense sales that the Chinese, for example, are doing, selling armed drones in the Middle East. Yeah. The, the, the monopoly on military advantage that the U.S. held after the Cold War is, is over. Mm -hmm. And that has profound implications. And I think a lot of people still haven't figured that out, both in government, but also at a younger generation. And I think it's a, it's a healthy thing to consider. Well, and it comes through crystal clear in the book. The book is, uh, it's a page turner. And uh, um, we don't want to give anything away. Uh, so um, I'm dying to give something away, but I won't. I won't. <laughs> but, but there was one passage that, that really struck me, and I, I'm just very quickly. Uh, you wrote, "We need to become again the country that breaks the hard problems, that sees the virtue in innovation and the reward in risk. If we do not succeed, then I worry that all truly is lost." There were a couple of laments that I heard in reading the book, and one is that 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 America is not the problem that breaks the hard problems anymore. What, what are those laments that you put into this book to sort of help us understand maybe the path that we're on? Well, one of the fascinating things about the book is that we, we pit China and America against one another, which should be bureaucracy versus bureaucracy, <laughs> but it's not. You know, we have entrepreneurs taking frontline roles in space and in cyberspace. We mm -hmm. have uh, almost a kind of junkyard you know, hot rod modification approach to naval warfare that's driven by the exigency of our declining shipbuilding in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the sense that the, we wove into the book was that the answers to this kind of existential crisis, if the U.S. were to face it, wouldn't come from the usual suspects. And right. in fact, would be this innovative spirit, this risk-taking uh, community that's in tech who would really be driving a lot of the solutions. And some of that reflects the nature of war. It's changing, it's going more digital. But even when you have the first naval battle in more than 70 years, like we posit in the book, that still is very much a product not of an establishment approach, a very bureaucratized uh, industrial complex. It's rather something far more uh, innovative and, and kind of uh, upstart, despite it representing what you know, arguably is you know, the greatest nation in the world. Mm. There's no question that it's an absolute page turner. Uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here because I'm a writer and I like to know process and writing and I'm going to get to that in one second. First question though, I can so see this as a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Will this be a movie? Well, you know, to your point about process, I wrote it and Pete wrote it like a movie. When we would talk about it, we talked about it very visually. Yeah. In films or yeah. video games we liked. It's a good frame well, of mind. Well, the, the, first, the first section of the book, too, it's you're, like, you're right there. It's meant to be a very visual experience even though you're reading it. And I think that's why the audiobook has worked really well for a lot of people, too, is that it really puts you in that place. Uh, I don't know if it'll be a film or not. I think it's difficult right now to make films about conflict with China uh, for the simple reason a blockbuster mm. has to have a, a China market angle to it. And that's, that's right. not something I think that would pass the censors right now. That may change in the future. Um, it would and, probably and be a high budget film too. I but. think it would need to be to kind of capture the, the, the kind of scope that we talk about. At the same time, you know, there are these elements really low tech to the story too, yeah. where it's not all special effects. You know, yeah. we play with the, the idea of insurgency, but in the most kind of primitive sense uh, as being the actual only way to defeat a high tech adversary. So, right. you know, if the adversary has exosuits and, and quadcopter drones and the ability to do see in the dark, uh, 
what do you do? Well, you go low tech. And I think that's actually another really important theme in the book tied to this generational relationship with technology that in fact the answer, particularly in conflict, may sometimes be to reduce things down to their most fundamental level, not to layer more and more complexity or more and more uh, engineering on a solution because that can be vulnerability. Co-writing, I know from experience, is a very difficult challenge. I've done it with one book that worked out well because I had a co-writer who was a great guy. It's not a frequent occurrence in novels. Right. Uh, the only example that I can think of, the prominent example, would be Peter Straub and Stephen King. Stephen King, one of my favorite authors, have collaborated, co-written two books and apparently are working on a third. And they talk about their process. They started with the Bible. And that grew out of discussions, by email, by phone calls, by occasional meeting. And then they traded off. Stephen would write one section, hand it over to Peter. Peter would write the next and back and forth. How did you guys do it? We came up with uh, the mother of all outlines. Uh, you know, but, but also, Is it longer than the book? Uh, almost. Uh, almost. You know, the, the idea, though, was to have something akin to this Bible that you're talking Bible, about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we also knew that Red Storm Rising was actually co-written. It was uh, Larry That's Bond right. who worked with Tom Clancy. That's right. So that gave us heart that this I'd could work. I've forgotten that. And uh, you know, we, we get along well personally. We have a lot of similar uh, references in terms of our films we like, books we like to read. Um, we, at the same time, they'll have different ways of thinking and approaching things. And if you're collaborating with someone, I think one of the most important things you can ask them is, what do you like to do and what do you not like to do in the process? And, and what we, while we co-wrote literally every page, we often uh, liken it to 3D printing. If the outline was our sort of software program, we would pass the manuscript back and forth. I work in the early morning. Pete tends to work more at night when it comes to fiction. And so we literally layered over and over on each other. And we had a very good editor in Eamon Dolan. Uh, and I think that is also not to be overlooked if you're teaming, to have someone who can, who can really kind of drive you both. Yeah, sort well, of the, the, ta the ringmaster, really. There's, there's nothing, I'm familiar with both, both of your writing styles, and it's seamless. It, you, it's not like, oh yeah, Peter wrote that piece, and no, August no, wrote that. No yeah, there's there no two sense minds of that wanted to yeah. avoid any, you know, an academic uh, book, for example, or if we'd done a nonfiction version of this book, yeah. we might have alternated chapters. Right. You know, Pete might have written something on, say, uh, cybersecurity, mm -hmm. because he'd just done a nonfiction book on that. Well, we really wanted to avoid that, and to have it seamless. And it actually is, is more fun that way, because you, you check each other's blind spots better, both mm -hmm. creatively. You know, I, I wrote another manuscript myself, and uh, you know, there would be a problem you'd be working on in your own head for 30 days, and you could do it in 30 minutes, you know, in a phone call with your collaborator. It's a book about conflict. Was there any conflict between the two writers? We generally uh, were aligned early on. So anything we needed to resolve, we did during the outline phase, because both of us didn't want to waste any time or any effort, because this is a big task. Both of us, yeah. our, first, our first fiction book. Yeah. Uh, and so we hammered all, all that out early on so that when it got to the writing of the book, uh, we, we got good feedback from our editor early on that forced us to, to double down. I think on some of our character development and a few things. So I think you sound like you're easier to work with. We'll talk after the show. <laughs> right. I've got a few co-writing ideas. So, so when, when, so I want to. I, I don't want to leave anything on the table in terms of the book, but I do want to make sure that we spend a little time talking about uh, the project that you're running sure. at the Atlantic Council, the Art of Future War. Um, tell us a little bit about what that is. So the Art of Future Warfare project really is based on the was sort of asking an open-ended question. Could artists contribute both in their visions of the future but also their methodology to the national security community? So over the past year, we held a series of events that were tied to crowdsourced writing or visual art contests and uh, centered around a website we made, which was artoffuturewarfare.org, 
we built this community essentially month by month, wow. reaching out to the gaming community, sci-fi community. There is also this really great moment uh, in Washington right now where professional military uh, thinking is very much leaning towards the importance of writing mm -hmm. uh, in expressing and exchanging ideas. That's part of the reason why Ghost Fleet is resonating with every one of the armed services. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the project is aligned around that. And mm -hmm. it's uh, somewhat serendipitous that that's the moment we're in. But also I think that's the part of the genesis of the project, which was the, strate the strategy community, the kind of strategic thinking that's going on, needs a little narrative nudge yeah. to capture the breadth of audience to solve a lot of these problems. Well, so this is this is one of the questions that I had. I know that you've worked with the Marine Corps, for example, to help them uh, uh, do some imagining around their future, their, their, their predictions about the future. Um, is it a matter of uh, spicing up the narrative so that people are more likely to slog through a 137-page treatise about future of technology and conflict or is there some additional analytical value that you get from you know setting aside the, the technical documents and thinking creatively I think the analytical value is that fiction or vignettes draw out the human element mm -hmm. and that's often lost in a big white paper and so with what the Marine Corps was working on it's a strategic environment uh, forecast looking at 2030 to 2045 and mm -hmm. it's a great document with uh, some baseline futures alternative futures following the traditional let's think about the future foresight model and so what we are doing with the project is working with actual marines who are, who are writers themselves uh, who are drawn from th uh, throughout the entire marine wow. corps very cool yeah and and kind of coaching them and doing literally a writing workshop and they uh, like it they do they're yeah. very enthused by it because wow. there is incredible talent uh, residing within sure. within uniform absolutely uh, and within other agencies and departments of government too and so I, I don't think people have been given in the past the chance and so what's nice now is that there are generals who are willing to say that's important let's fund that let's let's approach uh, let's approach that in a new way to engage not only the traditional captains and, and majors and colonels, but let's think about the privates, the corporals, because they're the ones who, if they stay in the service for 15 or 20 years, will be actually the people you know, living out many of these vignettes and scenarios. Well, they're, they're the backbone of the military, of course. Right. Yeah. Do you see um, sort of, so beyond, so who are the others that you're working with? What is the, what is the audience for this? Uh, I know that you had a, uh, a successful conference last year on this project. Where is the future for uh, the art of future warfare? So one of the interesting projects right now, we're working on a future uh, trends project with uh, Matt Burroughs at the Atlantic Council who used to do a lot of this foresight work for the intelligence community. And so we're creating a, a kind of a baseline for 2035, it's called Global Trends. And so we're gonna be helping that process by doing a bit of red teaming, meaning taking assumptions and pushing back, but also developing narrative and other vignettes. And are, are there other authors, other, I mean, so you talk about using folks who've been drawn from the Marine Corps, but are there other people who are working in the space of, of uh, uh, techno thrillers, uh, filmmakers, so, so video game makers? When we went to Quantico early in February, uh, one of our fellows came from the Atlantic Council, and that was Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z. Yeah. Uh, yeah. which has been a tremendously important book in, the, in yep. the defense community because it is such a compelling exploration of breakdown of how thin the kind of line is between order and chaos, but also if things got really bad, what would we do as a functioning society about it? And so Max is a fellow, Dave Anthony, who directed the Call of Duty Black Ops uh, 2 game, which was one of the most successful ever, is also a fellow for his ability to think clearly about the future, but also for his experience managing teams on zero defect uh, standard schedules where you have real make or break budgets that 
if you fail, you are going to be in a lot of trouble. And uh, he's someone who can talk at great length about how to motivate people, how to encourage creativity, how to you know, create an environment where you know, there are no bad ideas and, and to mean it because, again, the outcome is what, what makes that worthwhile. I feel like there, we've just scratched the surface with August. Yeah. But, and I but, want to see the sequel, too. Uh, seriously, but uh, we're, we're out of time, but uh, we want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, the book is Ghost Fleet. It's a fantastic read. Uh, and we want to thank Llewellyn King and Linda Gasparella for lending us the keys to White House Chronicle. <laughs> They'll be back next week, and if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org. Wayne and I will see you again next month. Thank you for watching.